everyone. Welcome to Grace. As you come in and find your seats and we get ready for our worship, the children are going to help us sing our carol prelude this morning. It is called Wild by the Sheep, and I believe it's number 215 in your hymnal, but double check that against the bulletin. We're going to sing Wild by the Sheep. I'm just going to stick it from right here so that we'll be safe and do this. I hope you got a bulletin. It's good to see everybody this morning. There are some announcements in there, but this morning I'll let you read through a lot of those announcements. We do have a lot happening. We do want to welcome you if you're here visiting with us. We hope you enjoy our, our choir with our children and adults this morning. They are also having their kids' Christmas program this evening, and our, our youth are still doing activities. So please keep up. You'll see in the back of the bulletin on the last page several announcements of all the activities that are up and uh, coming. Uh, we want you to be a part. We know many of you will be traveling. We know there's families coming in, but we still want to invite you to be a part of anything that you can be a part of. Um, but also, I want to make a special announcement. I know in many of the bulletins, if they haven't fallen out everywhere, you'll, you'll see these. But the PCA has approved what is known as the Ministerial Relief Fund. And we have many, many, many pastors or wives who are left who are struggling to make it. And uh, as you know, many ministers and pastors and missionaries uh, don't make tons and tons of money going through life. But they have approved a Christmas offering the last several years. And so what we're going to do as a session 
If you're ready this week, because some knew about it, but if not, next Sunday and the following Sunday, if you would like to support what we call the PCA Christmas Offering, we invite you just to bring a check, a normal check, make it out to our church, but put in the memo item, uh, PCA Christmas Offering, or the ministerial offering, either one, and we will collect that here at the end of the year, and we will send all that. 100% of the money goes to either help widows, widowers, pastors, people who have struggled and are unable to go. And so we want to use those funds to help those ministers so they can continue to live faithfully. So please note that. If you have questions, uh, call the office during the week or let us know. But we'd be glad to help you as we take that up. Uh, but other than that, I, I do want to remind, uh, we've had the deacon nomination and elders, and one other person asked me. Uh, we've tried to contact them all, and some are still getting back with me. But we need you to pray, men. Because as we transition again this year, we have several deacons that will be rotating off uh, and leaving the deacon board. And so as it stands right now, we will only have three deacons. So what that means is we'll only have three ministries that we can do starting in January. Really, that just means the session's going to be struggle. So, men, we ask you to pray about it. I'm sure the session will have to open back up more nominations. And I know many of you are serving in many ways, and we appreciate it. Uh, but we do need those deacons to come on the board to help oversee and report and to run and to make sure things are going well. How we're structuring it now is the deacons don't do it all. They function as a board and oversee ministries below them so that they can be a part of a board rather than just doing it. But, but just be in prayer as the Lord reveals to us. Everybody needs a break. And in our bylaws, you can only serve so many years before you have to take a year off. And so be in prayer, and if you're one that said, well, I wasn't nominated, but I've been praying about this, uh, it won't take long as we open that up to at least know, but we definitely need some men to be praying about how they can serve uh, in that ordained position here at the church. Uh, other than that, let me call us to worship. It's an exciting morning. If you'll stand with me for just a moment, uh, we'll stand together, and then we're just going to begin and do our confession and stuff and prayer, and then we'll get started with choir. So let me call us to worship here where it says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And so let's prepare our hearts together as we confess. You'll see it written there in your bulletin together with me. Let's confess our sins together. Jesus, Lamb of God, have mercy on us. Jesus, bearer of our sins, have mercy on us. Jesus, Redeemer of the world, grant us peace. Amen. And as we always come, we find the assurance of grace and pardon here in Psalm. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be revered. Let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our children. I thank you for our teachers, for all the workers who have helped them. I thank you for the adults and the choir as they work together. That, Lord, as we share in this Advent season, as we celebrate the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, let it all be just a preparatory work of the true change, the true salvation we experience when your Holy Spirit convicts us and we realize we need you. Lord, it is our prayer this morning that as we worship that we can glorify you and give you all that is due to your name. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
we sing Joy to the World. seated and as we come to a point of our candle lighting I'm going to invite invite the columns to come forth and uh, Larry's on our green team but uh, they also help lead us in many other things as him and his wife come and share with us in our Advent season as we come to the week of joy as we continue through our Advent season and the lighting of the candles of hope peace joy and love we are drawing even closer to the time when we recall Jesus' birth as well as his second coming. May the Lord use this season to draw you and your family closer to him. First, we relight the candle of hope as we are reminded that Jesus is our only hope. Next, we relight the candle of peace as we are reminded that Jesus himself is our peace. We now want to light the candle of joy. As the coming of Jesus, our Savior, draws closer, our joy builds with our anticipation of his birth. Isaiah 65, 18 says, Be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. The Israelites were reminded in Nehemiah 8:10, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Habakkuk even prayed while waiting on the Lord, saying, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Emmanuel has come to us to bring us life and never-ending joy. It is our prayer through this season 
that you and your family will experience the joy that only Jesus can bring. As we come to a time of prayer, there is so much for us to be thankful for, but also to lift up before the Lord. And so let me lead us to the Lord in prayer. And if you would, in a moment, join me in the Lord's prayer as we join together before we take some time for the offering and the choir to lead us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we come uh, here with open hearts to receive, uh, Father, not only the truth of your word, but the love that's shared in song and the joy that comes in fellowship. Lord, we're here to be able to lift one another up and to share our burdens and our concerns. Lord, to find strength from one another so that as we leave this place, we find uh, that we have the strength within us through your Holy Spirit and the encouragement of our family to continue being faithful in this world, to be obedient, to be a part of the great commission in which you've set for us. But Lord, it's also with hearts that we come not only to receive, but to lift up those in our church, Lord, that we're praying for. Lord, we have so many families, as you know, Lord, that have been through surgeries and are recovering. Lord, we pray that you will give them strength, that you'll bring healing, that you'll bring encouragement to them as they go through uh, phases of rehab and transition in their lives. Lord, as they overcome uh, the obstacles that were placed before them, that they would rejoice in what it is you've uh, brought about in their life. Lord, we pray for those who are going through treatments constantly. Lord, as we surrender to you the outcome. Lord, as we're constantly reminded that our bodies are wasting away and that diseases are prevalent and that cancers are rampant. Lord, I pray that you would bring peace to the so many of us who have faced the cancer, faced the unknown. Lord, the anxiety that it can bring, the fear that can be attached. Lord, we humble ourselves when we realize we, unlike any of the others in the New Testament, are sometimes with so, such little faith that we should be trusting you always, that we should realize your will is being accomplished and that regardless of what happens to this body, Lord, we trust that it's under your providential care and that one day as it will be resurrected to a new body, to a new life, it doesn't affect our eternity in what we face here in this body. Lord, what matters is that our heart can be changed, that it can be softened, that our lives can be changed through your Holy Spirit that we can come to an understanding of our need for Jesus Christ, the need for him to exchange places with us, that our sins can be covered only through his perfection, his obedience, his sinlessness. Lord, it's these things that we come together to rejoice over, that our salvation belongs to you, that our strength belongs to you, and our encouragement belongs to you. And even the access that we have to the Father belongs to you. For as you gave yourself and tore the veil and opened the access, even now we as a whole are able to boldly come to the throne of grace and pray as you taught us, saying, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
At this time, we want to ask our ushers if they will come forward, and we want to say thank you to everyone this year who has been so faithful in helping us support the ministries of the church and expanding his kingdom.
Amen. You may be seated. And thanks again so much, again, for the choir and the children and the musicians and the readers and the sound and video team in the back. It's amazing if you were to count up how many people it takes for us to do ministry in one weekend. It takes a lot. It takes a lot of help and volunteers, and we couldn't do it without you. And so thank you uh, for all of the help and leadership and service you provide. As we prepare him room in chapter 8, I want to take a moment as we are going to another familiar section. We just finished the feeding of the 5,000, and I know that you probably showed up today and thought, well, now we're doing the feeding of the 4,000, and if I wanted to get out early, I would just say ditto. <laughs> you all know that phrase is, right? I could just look at the feeding of the 5,000 and put it next to the feeding of the 4,000 and just say, okay, ditto, because there's so many similarities in those. I do believe they're separate stories. There have been those who've tried to debate and say, well, look, this is a, a reason why there's mistakes because obviously they're the same thing repetitive, but that's not true. Even in Jesus' own words, he tells them, how have they not understood with both of them? It is an actual event that happened again. The sad part of it is you would have thought the disciples through the first time would have now understood and been prepared for the second time around. And so today, I don't want to take you on a journey through the story again of the Lord's Supper. I want to pick up on the reason I believe Mark puts these stories together and why the feeding of the 4,000 gets laced, inserted right between what we know as the healing of the one who is deaf and the healing of the one who is blind and how it is that he makes reference to his disciples in the same passages that maybe the disciples are really no different than the one who was deaf and the one who was blind. And that so many times in our own lives, even though we have seen God work, even though we have seen what his spirit does, and even though we have watched the way he changes people, we still don't get it when he works before us. And it seems as though we just won't believe and we just won't understand until he gives us a greater sign. So I'm titling it, It Doesn't Take Much. It doesn't take much to go one way or the other in your walk with Jesus Christ. Listen to what Mark tells us. I'm going to pick up after the feeding of the 4,000. He's done the same thing in the feeding of the five. There are similarities, a few differences, but I want to focus, beginning in verse 11, on what happens in the transition after this feeding, in which, again, I preface to you, this is no different than the feeding of the 5,000, other than it's more specific in its terms. He focuses more on the issue of Jesus, and he's the one that brings the provision rather than the people asking, but it's the same understanding that Jesus is providing for those who are in need and he has compassion on those and his disciples fail to see the truth behind what he's doing. And so I could preface it before I read by asking you the same question. Are you failing to see what Jesus is really doing in your life behind the activity that's going on? Are you caught up in the signs and the wonders? Are you caught up in his activity and what others say? 
and missing what he's doing to you. It doesn't take much, and it changes everything about you. Here's what he says, Mark chapter 8, verse 11, after the feeding, gathering together all the stuff. He says, and the Pharisees came out, and they began to argue with him, demanding from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. We're speaking of the lake. And the disciples had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. The good news is they were in the boat with him. They were willing to continue following. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not comprehend or understand? Do you still have your heart hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, 12. That was probably Peter. I don't know that. But you know how they're smart aleck in every one. He probably wanted to be the first one to answer. It's 12. I got it. I remember. And then he says to them, and when I broke the seven for 4,000, that's why I believe there are two separate events. I think Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, God himself is speaking of two separate stories. They're not a confusion in writing. He says, and when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, what? Seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a man who was blind to Jesus, begged him to touch him. Taking the man who was blind by the hand, this is Jesus, who brought him out of the village, and after spitting in his eyes and laying on hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And looking up, he said, I see people, for I see them like trees walking around. And again, he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently. And was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him on his way home saying, do not even enter the village. So we have a story. We have the speeding of the 4,000 now, which is a repeated event of how Jesus is reaching out for the compassion of the people that are there to follow him. And it's nestled between the story of those who are, if you wish to say, deaf and have ears to hear but don't, and those who are blind and have eyes to see but don't. And it's surrounding the story of the disciples who seem to have ears to hear and eyes to see but don't. And they come into a confrontation with Jesus. And so this morning, I want to take you on a very quick journey and help you understand these things, if I can, in an applicable way. This morning, I won't bore you with all the terms that I give you many times, in which Mark is still using a multitude amount of terms, in which he's only found here in Mark. There's a few that are important when they come to trap him. 
But listen to what it is. It only takes a little bit. It doesn't take much for God to be able to change your heart, your mind, your attitude, and to set you on a course that follows him the rest of your life to experience the benefits that come with being faithful to Jesus Christ and trusting him for every provision that you need. I could go on and on and on in the details and just give you a, a paraphrased summary of our need for Jesus Christ. But the focus here is what Jesus is saying, not to the deaf man and to the blind man, but to those of us who think the problem is with other people. And yet he's speaking directly to us. Let me paraphrase it or reword it. Just how long have you been in church and missed church? Just how long have you been in study and missed study? Just how long have you been reading scripture and missed scripture? Do you see, if we put it in today's terminology, just how long have you been Christian and missed Christian? How long have you been a follower of Christ and missed Christ? That's the scenario of the feeding of the 4,000. It wasn't just another story that he could go out and prove a miracle. He was surrounding it around the issues of the disciples and giving them a chance to see, I believe, wholeheartedly, that when one man begins to see, not clearly, and then he touches them again to even see clearly and thoroughly, he's actually showing a miracle to his disciples that one day the same will happen to you. Today you may not see so clearly, but if you'll allow me to touch and change your life, if you'll trust me, it won't take much and you'll begin to understand exactly who I am. And this morning my prayer for you is the Holy Spirit touch you. It won't take much for you to understand who he is. Begins when he says in the first few verses in 11 through 13 when he comes out and the Pharisees are there to argue with him is actually what it says. That's the word that does matter here. This is at the time, which is the Greek word that is used for arguing or debating or actually setting someone up to stumble. It wasn't that the Pharisees were just coming out to say, hey, we want more information. They're finding ways to get Jesus to stumble. That he would have to back himself up to be able to pull back some of the things that he has said. To admit that he can't do everything that he said he would do. The Pharisees were there to try to figure out a way to turn away, if you wish, those who were following him and being fed. To discourage those who were trying to be close to him and have them to leave. The Pharisees were actually going against everything they claimed they were going for. They were supposed to be the ones who were leading us to follow too. They're actually discouraging and confronting Jesus and demanding that he prove things to them. And the hardest part of this is, is you have to ask yourself, are you too one who does the same in seeking signs for proof? Here's what it says to them. They demanded a sign from heaven. They weren't looking for authority. They weren't looking for power. Folks, they have already seen spirits cast out. We've seen this. They've seen the storms stop, the waves eased. They've seen people who can't speak, speak. People who couldn't hear, hear. I mean, this isn't about power to do. What they're looking for is a sign of authenticity that he is truly the Messiah. Just do something else that proves I really need you to make my life what it's supposed to be. 
for it's a whole lot easier to find those answers somewhere else. This morning, I challenge you, the authenticity comes not from the miracle that you're asking Jesus to provide for you, not the sign that you're laying out for Jesus to find proof that he is the one he claims to be. What are you waiting for this morning is what he's saying to the disciples. How much more do I need to do? What is it that you're waiting for before you can finally say in your heart and understand, Jesus, you're the one, you're the Messiah, you're the one that was promised. The message that he gives us about the ears needing to hear and the eyes comes from our Old Testament Ezekiel, comes from Jeremiah. They're the same stories that he's pulled out time and time again. But the question becomes this morning, what sign is it going to take for you? Well, Lord, if you, would just, if you would just heal this, then what? How is healing a relationship proof that he's the Messiah? Well, if you could just give me this job and a rate, well, how is that proof that he's the Messiah? The proof of the Messiah comes because you have trust in the scriptures, you believe that they're being fulfilled, and your heart's been changed, and you see who he is, and you realize that it's not what he gives you that demands your obedience. It's the fact that he is the Messiah and you need him. There's no sign other than that to be given. Jesus makes it clear. Listen to his words. This generation, he sighs, that's the word that is used, is a greatly deep sorrow for their condition. How many times have you tried to tell somebody something, those of you who train people, and you say to yourself, my goodness gracious, how many times have we been over this? How many times have you told somebody something you're training? He said, look, man, I've already told you this 10 times. I mean, what is it? Do you remember that old movie that left McFly? What is it? What does it take? I mean, I don't see why you're not getting this. And you don't want to say, there must be something wrong with that noggin of yours. Those are the words we would use. But what we're really asking is, what more is it going to take? And Jesus said, there's nothing more to be given. Because if you're demanding something for power, what more power can I give you than I've already ruled over the seas, ruled over creation, ruled over the demons, ruled over the diseases. I've cast out every disease, every sickness, and every ailment that you could have, and I've given you all that you've asked for in the sense of your needs, and you're still asking for more. And then he says, the problem is not with the signs that I'm doing. It's with the condition of your heart. Just think about this. Just asking Jesus for a sign reveals a lot about your heart, your faithfulness, and your trust. Can you not trust Jesus and just follow in obedience? Or must you be given tidbits along the way? I know the Bible tells us that he helps us in our time of need. How many of you want Jesus to lay that plan out at least five days ahead of time? Maybe five months ahead of time. I'll be honest with you, many times in my life, the greatest benefit comes when he doesn't even reveal the plan five minutes before it happens. Because he doesn't want me to trust in the sign. He wants me to trust in him. It doesn't take much until you realize you're trusting in things other than him. Well, now he says to us, it's not going to happen. 
Faith is not based on the proof tests that we ask for. Faith is based on this thing that we call trust. It's this noun we've shared before. It's what John uses as pistis. It's the word that is used in the verb form called believe. It is this concrete understanding that faith is trust in who Jesus is for who he is. Not just because he answers your prayers when you ask. If I asked you to raise your hand this morning about how many of you have had a prayer that's ever been unanswered. Or maybe it wasn't answered the way you want it. And so you believe less in Jesus. See, that doesn't make sense. I'm not trusting in Jesus because he's answering my prayers just the way I want. That would be awful selfish, would it not? And I'm not trusting in Jesus just because he's raised my children the way I wanted them to turn out. And that's why I trust in him. That would be kind of selfish. And I'm not just trusting in Jesus because I'm getting the things I want in the way I want to live so that I have the things that work out the way I thought. And pretty soon we realize the true trust is in who? I. I'm happy because I have the things I have wanted. And Jesus says, there will be no sign in which you're looking for to prove who I am. Because what I have done was to change your heart. And if your heart isn't changed, it's because it's hardened. And if you have a hardened heart, you're never going to understand who Jesus really is. And so he takes us on the journey a little bit farther. It's amazing the story of his limits of patience. I, I read this into this. I'm not saying I see Jesus, but into my own life when he says this, man, this generation, I'm truly frustrated. I could sense it. I'm not giving you this sign. There's a limit to God's patience. Now, I'm not saying God is not all-knowing, all-powerful and all this, but there's got to be some kind of limit. Because I remember back in the days of Noah, when his patience were limited and he said to that world that had gone astray, enough is enough, and he sent the floods. I remember in Romans when Paul wrote to those who kept on living and not acknowledging the truth and suppressing those truths and handing over the things that belonged to God when Jesus finally said in Paul's words, he gave them over to their lustful passions, their depraved minds. I'm not saying that if God wants to change you, he can't. What I'm saying is, I wouldn't be playing with God's patience because we don't know where the limit is. And we don't know just when the hardness of our heart may determine the consequences for the rest of eternity. The disciples obviously were there and they had to be careful because listen, he says to them, not only do you want a sign that I'm not going to give you, he says this to them in verse 15, avoid the leaven. That yeast that goes in. Did you know of all the times that leaven is used in the New Testament, only one time is it used in a positive manner? Do you remember where it is? I'm quizzing you, all you little geeks who love trivia. Those are the kind of questions that people ask me as kids growing up in games. Hey, what was the third cousins of Nellie's aunt sister's name in the book of Genesis? Oh, you don't know that? Because kids look at the answer on the back. You know how that is? Oh, you didn't know that, Dad? Oh, yeah, her name was Zesasamasamas. Oh, like you knew that too, right? I'm asking you the question. It's in Matthew 13, the parables of the kingdom, when even the little bit of leaven, as the kingdom of God grows, we are told to understand this analogy that it doesn't take much. 
that the kingdom of God grows when that leaven enters in and the spirit of God begins to work and Jesus becomes real and your life begins to change, it doesn't take much and it's all transformed. The problem is every other time in scripture leaven is used, it's not used in a good way. Jesus isn't saying beware of the leaven because I'm afraid my kingdom's gonna overtake you. He's saying beware because you're getting caught up in the same things the Pharisees and even Herod got caught up in. And it spreads like wildfire. And it hardens your heart so hard that you're unable to see when I speak the things that you need to see. And you're unable to hear when I share those things you should hear. And most importantly, you're not able to understand the things I need you to know. And so all of a sudden he realizes this leaven, according to the Pharisees, and as you know, Matthew even addresses it at times, it's the false teachings, it's the self-sufficiency, it's the self-righteousness. These are the things that leaven are used for to determine what is really spreading amongst people because the Pharisees, trying to observe the laws of Moses on their own abilities and their own standards, requiring others to do the same thing, where righteousness can be determined on their own efforts and their own abilities. This self-sufficient, self-righteous attitude had left the disciples hard. So hard they couldn't even see Jesus feeding the 4,000 after he had just fed five. So hard that when he told them to beware of the leaven, they were talking about the bread in the boat rather than their hearts. They missed it completely. Here they were all upset, if you wish, thinking about the leaven and the lack of bread when Jesus was speaking of their lack of faith. And this morning I challenge you in the same stories, folks, please, in the reality of where we are, don't miss the truth when God speaks. You're so focused on other things that when he speaks to your heart, you're automatically looking at other things. And the leaven has already hardened you. What is it going to take to soften this self-righteous, this self-sufficiency? This morning I ask you why they bring up Herod is it's only obvious because Herod too was for political gain, as you know, with the disciples and Jesus. He was doing it for his own self-gain, his own self-strength, just as the Pharisees were doing. You put the two together and what happens is they're united in an opposition against Jesus Christ. What Jesus says when he says, you need me, they say, no, we don't. We need you to help us be what we want to be which is the hardness of the heart. How many of you, like them, use Jesus for your gain? Hmm. How many of you expect people to treat you differently in a good way just because you're a Christian? Why does it make a difference if you have a Christian business or not? Would it change the way you behaved if non-Christian people came in? 
You see, throughout the time, we begin to see what Herod was doing. Anything that helped gain his authority or his, his approval rating with others would be fine. And as long as Jesus could do that, that was great. And the Pharisees, as long as Jesus was seen in their perspective and bringing them the glory so they could be seen like they've achieved, like Moses, that was great. But when the leaven began to spread and Jesus addressed it, they were simply arguing over bread when Jesus was speaking to their heart. And so he takes them to this point, which is so important. Do you truly trust Jesus for provisions? That's where verse 16 comes in when they began to discuss this fact with one another. Isn't that amazing? They're debating all over this, and Jesus stops it. It's like a futile argument. He's like, what are you guys talking about? If I could put it in my own words and laugh about it with us, it's like, where in the world are you guys going with this? Do you think I really care how much bread you have in the boat? You just saw me feed these people, and how many baskets did you pick up? And you just saw me do it again, and how many baskets did you pick up? And you're still discussing how much bread we need? He's speaking to the heart. He's speaking to the reality of the truth of what they're able to see. And he begins to proceed with them. Do you not yet comprehend? Listen to this. Do you have your heart so hardened that having eyes you do not see and ears you do not hear? They just saw the deaf man touched by the laying on the hands of Jesus. They're about to see the story Mark gives us of the blind man touched repeatedly by the hands of Jesus. And maybe the truth of it is he's saying to them, are you not just like them? Do you still not understand when you think you do? And so we begin to see how it plays out as this blind faith, which leads to the hardness of the heart, because folks, faith does have understanding. Faith is placed in something. We're not saved by a blind faith. It's not just leaping out over into the dark to see what happens. Faith is not jumping into the dark. It's leading to the light. That's what faith does. It takes us forward to the place we know is right, not just a haphazard jump into something we don't know. Not just being close to Jesus, it takes more than that. That's what we've learned in the last seven chapters. We're making a transition in the book of Mark to what is now going to be the time in which people begin to recognize who Jesus is. They begin to see him for who he really is. Next week, come back. I'll give you a little tidbit. We're working with stories of people who are deaf and blind, and they have partial sight, and they see a little bit, and they're beginning to grasp it clearly. And the very next story is when they come to Peter and simply say, who do you say that I am? You see, it's all leading up to the truth of what Mark is setting up. Is there coming in the reality in your life as well? You can't remain half blind, and you can't just remain half able to hear. You can't spend your life only halfway doing things around Jesus. There comes a point when you must make the declaration. There comes the point in which your heart must be softened. It must be made ready. It must be quickened. And you must answer the truthful question. Who do you say Jesus is? Oh, he's the one that fed the 5,000. Oh, he's the one that fed the 4,000. He's the one that helped the people see, and he's the one that helped the people hear. Oh, he's a great person, is he not? And Jesus said to Peter, I won't spoil it, yeah, but who do you say I am? I ask you this morning, sitting right where you are, 
of all that you've had, the wonderful teaching in Sunday school, the wonderful years of home Bible studies, group meetings, pastoral sermons, all the wonderful things that you've had. And I ask you this morning, but has your heart been softened enough to even know who Jesus really is? Have you trusted in him? If you're trusting in what he's provided, you're trusting in what you've seen him do, you're trusting in what you know he's able to do, you still have a heart so hardened that you'll never understand the truth. It doesn't take much. I like verse 17. Listen to what it says when he goes forward. Why are you discussing this fact? Do you not yet, circle that word, yet. Folks, it's the most important word probably in that sentence along with the one that comes later that says, do you still? Do you not catch that? Do you not see the glimpse of what Jesus is giving us for these disciples? The word yet and still create the whole concept of what we know is what's still to be expected and what's still going to come. And there is a future that changes and the disciples aren't stuck in this hardness of heart. It's just not yet that they understand and it still hasn't come. And so maybe the stories that we're watching around this is because it's Mark's way of saying, look, just as the blind man didn't get his sight fully, you may not see fully today. And even though Jesus took another touch maybe he needs to touch you again you see the story begins to unfold to let us help see the reality that Jesus has not given up on the disciples in his frustration of being in a generation of people who want signs and his own disciples are the worst and hardened of heart he doesn't quit on them he reassures them that you may not have it yet and it may not still be complete but if I could put the words in his mouth, he's saying, it's just going to take a little more time. You're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to spend time with me. And you're going to have to trust how I do it. Which is the story of Bethsaida. Do you trust how it is God's working? Isn't it amazing that the story of the deaf man before this and the story of the blind man here are told only in the book of Mark? They're only shared in this pericope to let us see the importance of those who are in the setting. And it's the story of Jesus reaching out to heal this person, and when he does, he only has partial sight. As if Jesus didn't have the power to do it right away. But maybe it's because the disciples too have only partial sight. And maybe because the disciples only have partial hearing. And maybe because in this setting we realize the importance of coming to the truth that we need clear sight. We need something further and yes, Jesus has touched your heart. He's changed you. You know the truth. But you have yet to confess him today. It doesn't take much. 
For he lays his hands on, as we know from the Old Testament, the laying on of hands for several different reasons, but I don't want you to miss the importance here. The laying on of the hands used to take that which was profane and set it aside for that which would be considered clean or holy. We call it consecrating. We even do it today when we lay hands on people that we're ordaining. We're saying we're taking you from the ordinary and we're setting you apart for that which is holy. But isn't it amazing when Jesus lays his hands on people, it's the opposite. He doesn't move the profane to sacred. He brings the sacred to the profane. He comes to you not to say you need to be changed into something else. He comes to simply say, I'm here to bring the holy to you. Have you received the sacred? Has he laid his hands on you? Has he set you aside and consecrated you? Or do you still just not understand? It doesn't take much to experience the continual touch of Jesus Christ, to change your heart, to begin to soften it and to make it ready, to open your eyes so that they begin to see and see clearly. It just doesn't take much until you'll completely understand that you can't know Jesus fully until you trust. He looks at the disciples and simply says, why in the world are you concerned about this? Do you not understand that you should be trusting in me? Examine yourselves to see if whether or not the truth is really in you, unless indeed, of course, you fail the test. 2 Corinthians 13.5. This morning, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, I ask you, has your heart been softened? Do you understand the truth? Are you still asking for signs? Are you still doing this for yourself? Or are you here this morning saying, I just need him to touch me, set me aside, and use me for his glory? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Help us to confess you. Lord, just as your disciples, so are we in so many times that you work right around us and we don't even recognize and we still fail to truly trust completely. Open our eyes. Open our ears. As you performed the miracles on those that were physically hindered, perform the miracle on those of us who are spiritually hindered. Help us not to leave this place today before we know in our hearts we trust in you, that you would provide for our every need, and we can follow you the rest of our days. We ask it in Jesus' name. You'll take your hymn book this morning and turn to page 846 as we prepare for the Lord's Supper to reaffirm our faith using the Nicene Creed. Uh, which is printed for us in the back of your hymnals. And uh, let's stand as we read it. Christian, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, 
maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You may be seated. This is not the table of Grace Presbyterian Church. It is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are a member in good standing in an evangelical church, if the way our Book of Church Order expresses it, and what does it mean by that? It means that you are a member of a church that believes the very things that we have affirmed using the Nicene Creed, that Jesus is God of very God, uh, that he is God incarnate, come in flesh, that we celebrate uh, this time of year, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you affirm that and believe that, and you've been baptized in the Trinitarian formula, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are invited to partake with us of the Lord's Supper, that you've discerned that you are in the body by the power of the Spirit, that you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You're invited to partake with us of the Supper. But let me also give the warning that Scripture gives as well, that if you, as the pastor put before us this morning, that if you heart is hardened, if you don't know Christ, if you're not sure of your relationship with Christ, let the elements pass. Remain. Do not take uh, the elements this morning and wait. Speak with one of the elders. Speak with the pastor this morning to be sure about your relationship with Jesus Christ, that he is your Lord and Savior. But this is not a table for those who are perfect. It is a table for those who are saved by grace, by the merited work of Jesus Christ alone, by what he has done for us. And that's what we celebrate in this wonderful season of the year, the coming of God's only begotten Son as our Savior and our Redeemer. Let's pray as we set apart these elements from a common to a sacred purpose. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the message that we've heard this morning, challenging us to examine our hearts and see that we are in the faith, 
to make our calling and election sure that we are your sons and daughters this morning. And Father, may we also, as we take the elements, covenant with you again in our hearts to follow you obediently, to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength by your grace. In these symbols this morning, these signs, we see who Jesus is, the body broken, the blood shed, there on Mount Calvary for our salvation because you loved us and called us out as your sons and daughters. We set apart, Father, from a common to a sacred use these elements this morning as we eat this bread and drink this cup. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If the uh, ushers will now come to the front. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and broke it as I do now ministering in his name, saying, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Lord Jesus on night in which he was betrayed at bread and delivered it to, his, to the disciples as I have done this morning, ministering in his name, saying, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After they had supped, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, given for many for the remission of sins. Drink ye all of it. As the cup is passed, let's sing from the backside of your bulletin.
After they had supped, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, given for many for remission of sins. Drink ye all of it. Let's close with our last hymn, which is printed for you in your bulletin this morning. Receive now the benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.